Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedda from the Comment and Analysis Desk. Donald Trump lambasted Hillary Clinton for being too cosy with the big banks. But how close is he to them now? This week, Ben McClanahan and Barney Jobson have reported on the post-crisis Wall Street regulatory regime and what effect the populist president-elect is likely to have on it. Mr Trump promised on the campaign trail to loosen the red tape in financial services, but being seen to be too kind to bankers could undermine his anti-elite theme. In this podcast, Ben in New York and the FT's company's editor Brooke Masters and analysis editor Chris Grimes in London discuss how likely an unwinding of the rules is and what it would mean in practice. So, Ben McClanahan, the bank stocks have been enjoying a really strong rally since Trump's election. When you talk to the bankers and their lobbyists and so forth for this story, could you tell a difference in their mood and their outlook since, say, six or eight months ago? Oh, definitely, yeah. It's all change on Wall Street. Uh, There's a guy called Dennis Kelleher who runs a a company called Better Markets, which is trying to uh, keep a close eye on the nexus between Washington and Wall Street. And he says the bankers are now partying like it's 2005. Uh, There was a big wave to deregulate back in 2003, 2004, and the banks think they're getting back there again. Well, it's got to be good for the uh, New York restaurant business, I guess. (laughs) Certainly, yeah. But part of this is driven by hope that some of the post-crisis regulations are going to be loosened up, right? Yeah, there is a hit list that these guys have, which we discussed in that big page. So what's at the top of the hit list? Well, it depends who you speak to, but I think the consensus amongst some of the big trading-focused banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they'd love to see the end of the Volcker Rule, which was put into Dodd-Frank at the last minute, and it was hastily written, they say, and in the end it was unworkable. Uh, Jamie Dimon had the famous quote that you've really got to be a psychiatrist to look in the mind of a trader and assess his intent at the time of a trade to work out whether it's legal or not. And since that that came into force uh, a couple of years ago, banks have had to file literally millions of terabytes of data to about half a dozen regulators saying, yes, this is okay, yes, this is not okay. But they say it's it's really put handcuffs on them. Brooke Masters here in London, Trump promised to dismantle the Dodd-Frank regulations during his campaign, but this may prove to be tricky for him politically. Is that right? It's hard to tell. Dismantling Dodd-Frank will clearly upset the Democrats. It's one of those issues where they think they can get the popular mood because fundamentally it would be making it easier for banks and bankers. And people are still angry about the 2007-2008 crisis, at least in some parts of the country. And dismantling Dodd-Frank has the advantage that it is in specific sections, so you can pick parts of it out, which does make it easier than Obamacare. Mm -hmm. But if the Democrats are going to hold together and refuse to vote for it. They may well be able to pick off some of the more moderate Republicans or those facing election in two years, who therefore would feel uncomfortable doing a giveaway. For example, on that very Volcker rule, what the Volcker rule says is banks should not be betting with their own money. It is impossible to administer, the bankers say, and it's crazy and hard to do. But as an idea that bankers shouldn't be taking your deposit money and playing games with it, it's very, very attractive. And so if you're thinking about how to frame an opposition campaign to repealing that, that's a pretty easy one. 
Right. And Trump ran as a populist who was anti-elite and would this deregulation push run counter to that? I think it could. I mean, he has, of course, appointed four people from Goldman Sachs after having attacked Hillary Clinton for being too close to Goldman Sachs. So he's what he's doing as a president-elect doesn't quite match up with the rhetoric. Right. But I do think if framed properly, the Democrats could run a pretty good campaign against him. Yeah. And Congress has a lot on its plate, too. When he takes office next week, they want to repeal Obamacare. They want to reform taxes. So banks could be waiting for a while if they're expecting some big change. That's my sense. In terms of really high priorities outside of the banking community and their very strong supporters on Capitol Hill, it's not a high priority issue. It's not a big vote getter the way, for whatever reason, Obamacare brings out emotion. And if you're going to try to show people I'm doing what you wanted, if I were Trump, I would be doing Obamacare, even though it's hard. Yeah. Ben, one of the things that the banks would like to scrap besides the Volcker rule is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was uh, Elizabeth Warren's brainchild. They recently claimed a pretty big scalp with a bank. Is that right? Uh, The CFPB, yeah. Well, the Wells Fargo sham account scandal last year, that was accelerated very much by the CFPB. Well, you have to doff your cap to the LA Times initially, who started digging into this, and then the city of LA, which filed a lawsuit against Wells. But no, certainly the the CFPB did a lot of running on this and extracted the biggest ever penalty it's ever had against one of the big banks that was 100 million back in September. And of course, it led, thanks in large part to Liz Warren's grilling on Capitol Hill to the departure of John Stumpf as chief executive and chairman. And now they split the two roles. And this is uh, not some esoteric trading rule or regulation. This is something that affected regular bank customers, right? Yeah, this is very much Trump's base. We would like to see some kind of rigorous enforcer of their rights. Otherwise, you get in the situation where you had pre-crisis where there's just literally nobody looking out for the consumer. So banks at liberty to do all sorts of things with all sorts of contract provisions, which the CFPB is now attacking. Right. But even though it's easy to get your head around I wonder how many people would even know what this CFPB were and would be upset that it had been uh, scrapped. That's the big challenge. It's only six years old. It's really been up and running for about three or four. I think uh, Richard Cordray, in most people's estimation, has done a pretty good job to raise the profile. But of course, the Republicans are hell-bent on at least, if not dismantling the CFPB, neutering it by making it compete for funds in the normal congressional process and also changing its structure, moving to a commission-based system just like the SEC, which would have the effect, of course, of reducing the power and influence of that individual director. Switching to a commission structure obviously would make it more subject to political whims. At the same point, the SEC and CFTC are both commissions, as are most other regulatory bodies in the U.S., and they do seem to function fairly well. It's hard to think that that's a complete disaster. Yeah, the Republicans just seem to have it in personally for Cordray, describing him as a dictator, saying his rulings are quixotic and there's just no second guess. What they'd like is, as they constantly say, checks and balances. Something else that the banks are talking about that they would like is just to see the rules on credit and lending loosening up more generally, I think particularly with mortgages. That seems like something that you could sell to voters pretty easily. What do you think, Brooke? Depends how it's framed. If you say we're going to make it possible for your local banks to lend more money, I think that's a very popular way of describing it, and it could be a popular move. If you're going to frame it as that big faraway bank in New York that messed up with people and, for example, J.P. Morgan had to pay billions and billions of dollars in redress to people who they forced out of their homes, they're going to ease up the rules on them. That's not such a popular thing. This is going to be, I think, a PR battle. If they can make the little banks be the front and center of the reforms and it's going to help them and help your community, it's a real winner. Otherwise, it could be really problematic. Ben, you quoted a small banker from Louisiana who had some interesting things to say about that. What's his argument? 
he's also leery of big Wall Street banks, but also would like to see a little regulatory heat taken off of himself. Yeah, what I think are all banks beneath really the size of the mega banks, the two big to fail banks, I want to see a more tiered, a more sensitive to size regulatory landscape. At the moment, you've got these strict thresholds under which certain standards apply and below which certain standards drop off, but that they want to see a more risk-based assessment. Now, there's no reason they say that any bank less than 10 billion has to succumb to these ridiculous restrictions on mortgage lending. Now, that guy in particular, Preston Kennedy from the Bank of Zachary, as you say, has said he's only got three branches, I think, in his region, and uh, he's had to hire a full time compliance professional at the cost of, I don't know, $100,000, which is a cost he just didn't have before the crisis and doesn't think he needs now. In the piece you quote Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, who said that Trump would be good for unleashing business, what did he mean by that? Yeah, I think uh, Jamie Dimon, of course, uh, is an advisor to the Trump administration. He chooses his words very carefully. I think what he's getting at is the chance of uh, higher growth, lower taxes, and possibly uh, lighter regulation on the banks, which have the cumulative effect of making banks feel more free. What I hear constantly from the big bank lobby groups is that they feel second-guessed by all the rules that have been put in place, and not least under Dodd-Frank, that they feel that they can't relieve themselves without permission from Dan Tarullo, the guy who runs the Fed program. Yeah, and he also mentioned something else that would be good for the banks outside of regulation and just a better business climate, and that would be higher interest rates. That's right. It's amazing how quickly some of these guys have switched, by the way. Before the election, they were all about Clinton and her business-friendly initiatives. Uh, Since the election, of course, it went the other way, and they're now on board with the other guy. So, Brooke, we've been talking a lot about regulations and Dodd-Frank, but there's also the issue of supervision, right? There are going to be some important jobs opening up in some of these bodies that supervise the banks. How important is that, and how could this change the landscape for the banks? I think it's pretty critical because... The best, most clever bankers learn how to work within the rules. They just want to know what the rules are, and then they'll tweak their business models and make money and do a great job with the banks. So if the people who are enforcing the rules take a fairly loose attitude and don't smash people who cross the line quite so hard, then it frees up the banks to be very creative, which can be really great. They create new products. They can lend to new people. They might be able to extend credit to riskier businesses. On the other hand, if they're too loose, the banks can get out of control, as we have seen, and they can invent CDO squareds and CLOs and other crazy products that, if not taken care of properly, can lead to a credit bubble and a crash. So the jobs that matter, for example, are this Dan Tarullo at the Fed, who will probably step down and there will be someone else in charge of bank supervision. And that matters most to the biggest banks. The other two people I think that one would watch are the head of the SEC, which basically enforces how banks treat their customers in the securities markets involving specific securities, say equities or bonds. And then finally, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which basically enforces the rules when it comes to how banks treat their customers as counterparties in derivatives. And when there have been Republicans in charge of those two commissions and also within the Fed, they have tended to allow more flexibility. So Dan Tarullo, you mentioned him, Ben. Why has he been such a thorn in their side? What's he like? I've not met him, but our colleague Barney in D.C. is pretty close to him. I hear that he can be a difficult, prickly person with a very short fuse. And that the bank's main complaint with him, because they have to work with him directly, is that he's just not responsive to the idea that some of these rules he's dreamed up since the crisis might not be working as well as they might. I was speaking to Kenneth Benson of SIFMA, the securities uh, trade body, for this story. And he was saying that, uh, look at Japan, where people are starting to question the wisdom of injecting a dozen different remedies in, into the same body. Uh, in the EU, there's also a sense that some of the rules may have gone too far, and it's time 
time to step back and have a look. And at the Fed, under Dan Tarullo, that attitude of, of taking a step back and examining what's been put in place, that hasn't been popular. All they've had, they said, since the crisis is just an ever-increasing number of regulations piling on capital and liquidity and prudential standards, which they say have gone way too far. It's time to take a breather. It would be worth pointing out, however, that the U.S. big banks are the most profitable, most successful, best positioned banks in the world. And some people would say, and I would say Dan Tarullo, who I've had lunch with, I would say that that is because they have been forced to live up to tough standards. And when the teacher sets high expectations, people meet them. He's a former... Yeah, he's actually a lifelong Fed guy, but he teaches adjunct classes. He also, I think, would say he, unlike some of the other regulators, was here during the previous period when the banks were getting a little too creative in his mind. And he is not a big believer in allowing tremendous freedom because he thinks it gets abused. Mm -hmm. He may or may not be right, but his perspective is, you guys blew it the first time, why should I let you do it again? Yeah, I agree entirely, Brooke. I think that the premium that the U.S. banks have over the Europeans is obviously due to Dan Tarillo. But the, the bankers, of course, say, yes, uh, that the attitude was appropriate uh, just after the crisis, but now we're way past the crisis. It's time to relax. So the phrase that seemed to resonate with the public the most after the financial crisis when it came to the banks was too big to fail. Do we think that the efforts to end too big to fail are at risk? Is this something in the offing? How would that happen? Well, I don't think we've ever ended too big to fail. I really don't believe that a J.P. Morgan could go bust tomorrow without taking the rest of the financial system with it. If one starts easing up on what we already have, it certainly doesn't make the problem any better. Yeah, I'd add on that. The the living wills process, which is designed to create a template for for winding up a bank in distress without burdening the taxpayer, they're very much untested. And the Fed keeps telling the big banks to go away and have another go. Uh, Wells Fargo in particular was given a long list of deficiencies last time. These templates that they've drawn up, there's just no way of telling how they uh, perform in a real crisis situation. These are supposed to be guidelines for an order. You're supposed to pull them off the shelf in the event of maximum stress, which I'd submit is is unlikely. Yeah, break glass in case of emergency (laughs) to unwind this massive institution. Last question I had was, if there were a repeal of Dodd-Frank, is there something to replace it? Not completely. If you repeal the Volcker rule, you don't need something to replace it. Mm. If you repeal all the things that underpin the global bank capital rules that have been imposed, they're going to have to do something or pull out of the global bank regulation process where everyone agrees to have the same rules. So you would have to come up with some kind of replacement. But you could repeal parts of it without having to replace it at all. Yeah. And you've still got the stress test process as well. The the annual CCAR, which is what the Fed calls it, applies to all the big banks over 50 billion. In that, there's been penalties applied to banks for holding huge inventories of bonds and stocks, and they can still apply the same measurements there. That would effectively restrict the banks from holding big inventories to trade. And you mentioned something called the Financial Choice Act, Ben, in the piece. Is this a real piece of legislation that's ready to go or...? Yeah, last summer it was ready to go and it appeared to have some momentum as a de facto Republican platform. But, you know, in recent weeks I've heard less and less about it. I've been asking, is this the template for unwinding Dodd-Frank? And no one seems to be willing to swing the weight behind it. So I doubt that it is the finished product. I think there's going to be a lot more input from a lot more people before the real platform emerges. Ben McClanahan in New York, Brooke Masters in London. Thanks, Thank you very much. You can read the full report by Ben and Barney for The Big Read on... Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. FT.com.